Welcome to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and turns of all the important relationships in your life. I'm Ben Azevedo, your backseat driver, and I forgot to write a quip. <laughs> Come up with one quick. Come on. Benjamin. No, I think we just keep going. Just keep going. Oh, we have to have a quip. All right. No. I'm Dr. Don Fernando Azevedo, clinical psychologist, executive coach, and voiceover artist, your navigator. And I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapist, expressive arts therapist, and your trusty mechanic. And I'm Dr. Michelle Deering, your mother-daughter relationship personal trainer, clinical psychologist, podcast host, and mom carpooler who likes to tinker on cars. Oh, I love that. Drivers, it's a good thing we picked up that rental van because we've got another extra passenger today. Today's quote is by an unknown contributor. The biggest surprise about motherhood was how completely and totally it changed how I look at myself and what I believe I deserve for the better. Last week, we kicked off a new arc talking about parent-child relationships. This week, we're delighted to welcome another guest onto the show, Dr. Michelle Deering. Dr. Deering is an expert on mother-daughter relationships and author of the best-selling book, What Mothers Never Tell Their Daughters. Welcome to the show, Dr. Deering. Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell us more about your work and what inspired you to specialize in working with mother-daughter relationships? Well, I actually, it started way back when I was a daughter. <laughs> I still am a daughter. But my mom and I, I was raised by a single mom. She was all about in survival mode. And so we really didn't have a close relationship growing up. And when I became a mom of twin daughters, one of the things that frightened me initially was, oh my gosh, I have girls. <laughs> I don't know how to do this mom to girl thing. And I decided that I wanted to do everything within my means to do better than what I had and experienced. Not throwing my mother under the bus, no pun intended, but it was, I just wanted something different for them. And with all my good intentions, didn't realize that I was unintentionally repeating some of the same patterns in terms of pressure and just really honing in on things or harping on things with regards to them. And I was licensed as a psychologist at the time, and I was working with uh, young lady athletes, student athletes who had eating disorders. And I noticed that a lot of the times between uh, spring break, when they'd go home, all the stuff that we had worked on, they'd go home and <laughs> inevitably it seemed to get undone as a result of interactions with their moms. And I thought, and again, no pun intended, there must be something to this Freudian thing. Tell me about your mother, because that was the thing that always seemed to come up. And fast forward, family moved to a cul-de-sac that had a lot of younger moms, people who were younger than I was, who had kids, in particular daughters who were under the age of 10. And I started seeing them either do things or say things where it seemed like they had no clue about what their words or actions were, the impact it was having on their daughters. And that started to pain me a lot. Hmm. And I thought, how can I best help them learn some of the things that I learned through all the years I've been doing you know, work as a clinical psychologist, but then also as a mom of twin daughters, how can I best help them? 
And so that's what prompted writing the book. And the more I, it, they say clarity comes with action. The more I kept doing that, it got clearer and clearer. This is my call. <laughs> this is what I'm meant to be helping folks with. And it's just been a blast. It's been humbling. It's been eye-opening of a process since then. What has been your most impactful event when you've worked with a mother-daughter group? Actually, the group stuff is just something that's new. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, I was working with moms individually. And one of the things that I'm thinking of one mom in particular, where she is a type A and, and her daughters are wonderful, but she came to me because she was concerned about one of her daughters go, uh, transitioning to middle school. And as we, as she was talking to me it, within like five minutes, and this is one of my knacks is like, I can hear someone talk to me within five minutes or less. I kind of know exactly, okay, this is what's going on. And all I did was ask her one of my questions that I normally ask folks. And a light bulb went on in her where she realized, wow, the very thing that her daughter was about to experience, there was a lot of stuff going on for her at that age, way back when that was unresolved. And once she grabbed a hold of that, i.e. saw the mirror of what my question was asking her about, light bulb went on, she was immediately motivated to then make the changes. And she and her daughter have been able to transition into that middle school year period of her life now much more smoothly than it had been. And so for me, those aha moments, th th that's wonderful, but it's when the aha changes to an action and I'm able to help them do that, that just floats my boat. Cool. Or drives my car. <laughs> <laughs> Any mode of transportation. Any mode of transportation, just get moving. <laughs> That's cool that you have twin daughters. I have a friend who had twin daughters this past year. Oh, sweet. Nice. It's been interesting to watch from afar. <laughs> are they fraternal or identical? They are not identical. So I guess they're fraternal. Okay. Okay. That's all I go. know about twins. <laughs> <laughs> uh, As a bio major, I won't go into the biology of it. <laughs> yeah. We'll save that for another time. Yeah. It seems like a lot to deal with all at once. Yeah. But, yeah, it is. Actually, I'm, I, I like having two. I would be bored with one and I'd be overwhelmed with three. So I think I got what I could handle, but it definitely, having twins has definitely made me see the value in really prioritizing that they're individuals because we never dress them the same. We always looked at them as, okay, how are they expressing themselves? And to see it in real time, as opposed to having one after the other, but God bless those who do, because I don't know how they do it. But having one after the other where you're going through the same cycle, I actually got to see it play out side by side. Yeah. Interesting comparison. We did try to dress Ben and Kim the same, but they didn't like it very much. <laughs> I just stole his clothes afterwards. That stripey wind blazer, though. Like, I really like point. that one. I don't remember. It's my favorite. This. I, I stole. Never. You had a stripey windbreaker that I stole from you as a child because you didn't fit in it. Um, oh, yeah, blue and white stripes. It was gorgeous. great. <laughs> you can keep it. I have many pictures in it. We'll have to ask Mama if it still exists. Y'all wore it out. I mean, that was Ben wore that a whole lot, and Kim, you wore it. A whole lot more. It was a cool jacket. <laughs> All right. So, Dr. Deering, what is the most interesting thing to you about... Wait, we just did that, didn't we? 
Yeah. Can you tell us more about the life mirror? Ah, it influences everything I do and the way I work, the way I conceptualize mm-hmm. and look at helping moms with their daughters. The life mirror remedy is not a, necessarily a technique. It's really just a compilation of a process that I walk moms and mom groups through to actually explore what what kinds of patterns have brought them to where they are right now, and then make informed decisions about what they're going to prioritize in terms of making changes in their, their relationship with their daughter. And then I'm really big on, and I know you can attest to, big on boundaries, seeing where the boundaries have not been held the way they need to be held uh, because moms are still the parent and their daughter mm-hmm. is the child. And so that's what I help them with. It's interesting that you bring up boundaries because mm-hmm. that's something we've talked about on the show several times. And of course, a thing that I'm really into. One of the things that I do is using boundaries to also honor and respect the child's thought process and will and to model the idea that they also have uh, a capacity to hold their own space. How does that play in with the life mirror remedy? Actually, it's very, that's part of the, there are five steps. I use that in big quotations to the process. That's step number four, prior to re-engagement. And so boundaries are big in that when you look at the way in which children come into the world, their primary caregiver is normally the mom because she's given the birth. But in those early moments, (laughs) kudos to mom, in those early moments, that, that mirroring, that reflecting that goes back, how responsive is the mom to the child? And without belaboring it, geez, I'm like going into all these belaboring birth. Okay. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> keep this going. Is great. <laughs> but I'm, I'm into this. Let's go. Without belaboring the point, that whole mirroring that takes place becomes the the bedrock for how a child learns their social cues, but also how their sense of self gets reinforced, i.e. they act a certain way or they have a certain kind of emotional response. And if the mom is not mirroring that back to them, then they start to question, okay, am I accurate in my existence in the world? Then you fast forward that through the toddler years and then through the tween years, there are these moments of separation where the mom, if she's not holding the boundary to let that child know okay, you are an entity who has now wandered off away from me, (laughs) okay, physically, emotionally, mentally, in terms of the nose, (laughs) okay, that that, that's okay. And she still needs to create a safe space that's boundaried for the child to come back to. And then you move into the teen years where you're having a lot of the identity stuff come up. And really the arc for a mom-daughter relationship is different from a mom-son relationship in that. And I'm sort of paraphrasing an article that was written by C.J. Boyd back in the 80s for the APA, where it's like during that time period, having had mom as the first female example for a daughter, she's now got to carry that through as she identifies herself as an entity separate from her mom. Whereas a son, he's now got to try to separate from the mom because he's got to figure out what his maleness will be 
in the world and however it is that he defines that. But for a young lady, that whole thing gets very complex and becoming an entity a separate from her mom is key. And depending on how the mom reacts to that, <laughs> will determine how the daughter goes through it. And that's why I actually <laughs> see that tween teen year thing as quite interesting. The ride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It sounds that's, like that's a foundational. A yeah. <laughs> I think we've talked about that that zone of time on this show before. Mm-hmm. Right, we never right, talked about my experience of being a teenager ever. Never. I can't wait to have you on it my was, show, though. I'm looking forward to that part. It was <laughs> we'll like the smoothest that. transition ever. We did great. There was no fighting. You I definitely didn't knew scream your identity at all. Immediately. Ex- it, no. That is true. <laughs> No concern about being an individual person. Oh, man. Hmm. That's great, though. That's really well, you, good information. You skipped to the question I was going to ask later, which is, what do you do with a sassy daughter? <laughs> <laughs> you got to build, you gotta build <laughs> better boundaries. <laughs> really, what's interesting is that, and I'll just speak for myself. Okay, so I have my twin daughters. My younger of the twins, temperament-wise, is more like me. And what I didn't realize until they, we hit the tween teen years was that the way in which initially I did not hold that boundary because I was really projecting a lot of my fears and concerns about life for her, my not holding that boundary, that's what prompted the backlash from her. And once I got a hold of that, because I had to face myself, once I started holding that line, then I was able to recreate because I had to build, rebuild the trust again. Then she started to come back. But that took years. And glad to say now, I mean, we're just, you know, buds as, as she's gone off to college and stuff like that. So boundaries are important. Definitely. Yeah. Can you talk any about the parentified child? So when the daughter ends up parenting the mother more than the mother is parenting the daughter, have you seen that at all? Or, you know, what do you have to say about that type of relationship? Because it is similar yet different in that the power structure is flipped and can put a lot of pressure on the child. I see a lot of the parentified children in my office. Yeah. Well, one, first off, I'm not a... Lasting's family, marriage and family therapist. So I don't do family therapy. So I'm speaking from. I'm the only licensed marriage and family therapist on this show. There you go. There you go. Kudos to you. Because really, the family system is, I mean, we don't grow up in a vacuum. And so that's so important. And I think one of the richest times I had in my clinical training was when I was supervised by those who were licensed marriage and family therapists. So I, I take that to heart, but I have to be fully disclosing. That is not my area of expertise. So I work more in dyad. But in terms of the boundaries that are not held, usually I've found that it usually happens because the mom has had either an unmet need, an unmet expectation, and is trying to make up for it in some way, shape, or form with their daughter and crosses the boundary where the child ends up. I mean, kids pick up on things. (laughs) 
and they know they need to be taken care of. So it's sort of like, whoop, mom's falling short. <laughs> I need to do stuff. So what was the question? I'm trying to make sure. <laughs> Just go so many you, different ways. It could. How you would approach that as far as the dyad goes of reestablishing that relationship. A okay. lot of the cases I see are the parentified child, but now as an adult and trying to understand what it meant growing up in that system and how do I reconnect with my mother about this. If I had the mom in front of me, I would really be exploring with her and helping her put a mirror up to what her unmet need or expectation was or what the injury, personal injury was to her internally or externally that didn't get met and really address that and then take her on a journey through my process of finding ways to put new boundaries around herself internally first to understand and heal. If I had the adult daughter who was parentified, it's really about having her recapture, almost like going back and having compassion on herself for having been put in that position unintentionally. Because my goal is my goal is not to have someone lay blame or guilt or anything like that. It's all about gaining understanding because it's with that understanding that then you can make more informed decisions about, okay, well, this has happened. How do I feel that? How can I reconcile that within myself first and then make informed steps with some compassion, not just for yourself, but for your mom? So that's where my focus is on the Mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Guilt is not a a great place to try and heal from. (laughs) No. (laughs) How long have you been doing this work? Over 20 years. Over over the past 20 or so years in your experience, how have you seen mother-daughter relationships change over time? And what do you think influences that? Well, technology in mm. and of itself has jettisoned this past generation all the way up to now. And even as I say that, it's folks think, oh, it's a positive thing. And whereas, yes, it has its positive aspects, I think what's happened is that the children, i.e. this next generation, couple of generations, the children have actually been asked to process things more quickly than they are developmentally able to. And I'm talking not cognitively per se, but more emotionally. And I think as the adult parents, i.e. moms, we've not been able to transition as quickly because we have... It's almost like, I don't, I'm trying to think of uh, the best way. It's almost like, okay, you found yourself in a Toyota Corolla that got souped up real quickly. <laughs> and you didn't realize that they put in some turbo engine. Hey, I don't know if you watch these car reality shows where they doctor up the, the cars and then you see something that looks like a little Volkswagen just like zooming down the track. So I feel like that's what technology has done. And so parents have had to play catch up and be more reactionary as opposed to intentionally purposeful about how they want to handle the progress. So I think that has impacted the mother-daughter relationship on a number of different levels because you're not just talking the time-lapse generational gap, but you're also putting this thing that it's propelling us to have semblances of, of connectivity, of communication, That's all being redefined as to what constitutes that. And it's taking out the whole face-to-face 
even though like we're right now face to face, there's something different than it's something different than breathing the same air. Mm. Not that we could necessarily do that in this COVID time, but so, with masks on, you know, just breathing the same air, being in the same space, even that's being redefined. And so parents sometimes will acquiesce to, okay, well, I'll just give the child this tool <laughs> and they don't know how loaded it is. And then they feel flustered. And so moms then feel as I said, more react- they end up being more reactionary as opposed to intentionally purposeful about, hey, wait a second. I actually have said this to moms. You are still the mom. You still have power in this relationship. And when I say power, I mean you have the final word with incremental you know, steps that are developmentally appropriate. You have say in here. <laughs> Don't abdicate the role. That's the reason why you're called mom and they're called child. And then that... <laughs> continues through, as I said, the different developmental stages where you have to learn now how to separate appropriately, maintain the boundaries, keep that safe space, but then allow your daughter the space to find herself and express herself. And I think the best gift that a mom can give her daughter is her presence and that the best gift a daughter can give her mom is to just be herself. (laughs) <laughs> and, and oh, do man. her. <laughs> yeah. My my gift for my mom for Mother's Day is a 5K. Does that count? <laughs> yes. If a fi- wait, if a 5K is the thing that's floating your boat and makes you feel okay, it's not floating your boat. If you're doing it for mom, then we should talk after. Okay. <laughs> we we <laughs> might want to talk after. <laughs> Uh-oh. So, talking about the internet and technology and that kind of thing. Mhm. One of the things that I I have found to be very effective is to help parents, instead of trying to control it by telling the child you can do this and can't do that, is work with the child about, well, what effect does this have? Who do you want to be? And if you're doing these things and not those things, how will that affect the story you tell yourself? So that the child starts to incorporate the values that says, I'm not going to go there because I choose not to, rather than I was told not to. Right. And as I said, everything at a developmentally appropriate stage, and I totally agree with you. The only thing I'd add to that is if your child is six years old and they're playing on an iPad, it's, (laughs) (laughs) you you know, I think there's something to be said for, actually, let me paint a picture for you. Okay. If you know that eventually your daughter is going to get her license okay, to drive a car. Well, then you know that there are certain rules that exist out there. There are certain dangers that exist out there when a person is driving a car. If you now have your six-year-old about to have in their possession something that's on the information highway, then what you're wanting to do for a six-year-old is you're wanting to instill rules around, you know, what can constitute safety, what constitutes abiding by a rule. Then as they get into the tween and teen years, then it becomes, okay, how can I now instill some of your, some guidelines for how you make decisions about who you hang out with? Because that will then translate into, you know, who you let in the car (laughs) or whose car you go into. (laughs) Okay. So it's just incremental like that, I think is something Mm -hmm. to be mindful of. 
Yes, absolutely. I was thinking more of the tweens and teens because one of the things that parents often struggle with is acknowledging that their children are going to make choices when they're not around. Correct. So helping them to figure out how to make those choices is really the job of the parent in the tween and teen years. Yes. It goes from being a directive to a coach to cheerleader. I also think it's really important for parents to recognize the role of fear as they're trying to create these rules and boundaries and understanding because mm. a mm. lot of parents don't understand a lot of aspects of technology. And so instead of learning, they just go, this is bad. And kids fight back on that because it's a video game. It's not that bad. Or it's social media. And I like talking to my friends and the parents stop because it's not something that they know. So I think for parents really addressing like, yes, technology is growing really fast there are a lot of scary things on the internet. I'm not saying there isn't, but look into it, explore it. If your child wants to play this game, learn more about this game before you just say no. Because unfortunately, your kids will find a way nowadays. <laughs> Believe me, I have, I have heard it all about technology and finding mm -hmm. ways. Oh my goodness. I mean, yes, it's always been true, but there's that false sense of, oh, I put up the ad blocker or the, you know, whatever, the parental control. Your kids will find a way. It's terrifying. But if you address that fear and have the conversation with them about this is why we're creating this rule or this is why this is a boundary, that mm -hmm. helps the kid better understand rather than, as Don was saying, the control of just don't do it. Because I will speak for all teenagers if you say, no, don't do it, we're going to go do it. Right. <laughs> I'm not even a teenager anymore, and I still hold that. And, and, and I see it in your face. <laughs> My personal no, trainer's actually, favorite thing to do is to tell me, oh, you can't do that. I did Watch it. me. Right. <laughs> no, actually, fear, I totally agree with you on that. And in terms of the way in which fear can seep into parenting, it is, yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better. And the only thing I'd add to that is, you know, cognitively, if moms can understand that when their daughters are elementary school and below, they're very concrete in their thinking. And so when they now reach the tween teenage, they're, even though their brain, you know, that prefrontal cortex and the 25 year old goal line, even though it's still developing, supposedly, <laughs> it's <laughs> developing, their analytical thinking needs to be engaged in a way that's more cooperative, where you're coming alongside them and having the conversations because you're trying to help them develop that muscle for decision making. And so, yes, that's <laughs> boss's favorite phrase. Help me understand. <laughs> It comes up many times on this I show. I refuse, for the record. Still refuse to help you understand. Kim, it's funny. I was going to bring up the same thing. You're like on the same wavelength. I, I always try to think about this stuff from a personal lens as much as I can. And I am a person who does not have any children yet, but is thinking about maybe having a child someday. Oh, it's you heard it here. And uh, well, I've, I've mentioned this before. And yeah, that sense of as I think about it, I'm like, that is, it's really scary. Like, how do you deal with technology and your kids? And that's such a huge topic. And I think Dr. Deering, he gave some really great suggestions and advice and, and insight in that. And thank you for that. 
welcome. And your baby's just going to be making synth. It doesn't care about all the rest of the technology. I'm keeping my baby totally analog. Analog synthesizers only. No internet. (laughs) Makes the coolest beats. My Mm. friends who have just had kids, I had several friends this past year have children. And (laughs) it's been, it's three different families and they all have children like under one, basically. One of them Mm. just turned one. And it's really interesting to watch, you know, the similarities and the differences across families. And I feel like I end up bringing them up on the show a lot too. But but yeah, one one family wants to do the like no technology route as much as possible. They actually, I think, took away the TV in their house. And I mean, these are infant twins. They're not, but it they're trying to start from that that place. And you know, another family is way less worried about it doesn't mind the kid kind of like ogling the phone a little bit and, you know, seeing a TV is no big deal. So I, it'll be interesting to see. I guess I'm running my own little informal study over here with my friends' <laughs> families. Well, don't forget when you were kids, we refused to have cable television. Yes. And we and were not allowed computers in our rooms right. when that became a thing. Well, I mean, yeah, technology-wise, it would have been really hard to have computers in our room just because no, they were we big. Had- um, no, we had a family computer and I had a desk that I did homework at. I absolutely could have had a little desktop in there. In fact, yeah. I did have that old Apple. I mean, that thing was, it used the, the actual floppy. <laughs> Macintosh. Floppy desk. Yeah. 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 And they had like Apple a couple games GS. on it. Yes. Yeah. But I think I played the games for a month and I got bored. So, so we did actually limit some of the technology of the day when you were kids mm-hmm. so that like you didn't have gaming stations. We didn't have the... Nintendo or the Nintendo 64 until, Kim, you were in the late part of elementary school and you were in middle school then. Yeah. And when I, the deal with that was, this is like one of my defining childhood memories. I had to save up for half of it. Yeah. Mm. So I saved up like, I don't know, $150, which Mm. for, you know, I was what, 13? That Mm -hmm. was the most money I had ever held in my hand at one time ever. (laughs) And I just distinctly remember, I think you were working at Cisco at the time. And we stopped by... Yeah, we stopped by your office, like the whole family, to pick you up and go to Walmart and buy this N64 and a couple games. And yeah. that's like a huge memory for me. It's funny because I'm wondering, Don, what what was the reasoning behind the monetary saving that he had to do? Work ethic. Also, my history. So I grew up in an immigrant family and we didn't have a lot of money. So when I wanted things, I had to work. And that drove me to be an entrepreneur when I was 11 years old. So some of that is my historic stuff. But the other piece of that is work ethic, the idea of I value something that I have put sweat and energy into instead of it's just given to me, those kinds of things. Now, of course, he saved up the money, but we made sure that he had ways of getting the money, right? It's kind of that. Those gumballs, though. And there was, (laughs) what's interesting about that is it wasn't like... Well, we've talked about some of this before, but it wasn't like I had chores that I, you know, wasn't paid for. And then there were extra activities above and beyond my chores that I could do to earn money. Mm-hmm. So picking up gumballs by the gallon bucket. <laughs> I mean, I think it worked because I definitely have that same mentality now. If I want something, you know, depending on the price of it, I don't just go buy it because I have the money. I try to like put aside some money and save up for it. So I really have the money for it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and it doesn't impact like my other finances really at all. And the saving up for half of it thing was something Don and Janice did throughout both of our childhoods, whenever we wanted a thing to make it a little easier. You know, if you want something 
as a 13 year old that's going to total $300. That's a lot to save up in like ones and fives. And so getting to 150 is like way more reasonable. And we would make these big posters with a thermometer on it and chart out <laughs> Those were my all the things and you get to color it in as you, oh, I got one oh. more dollar, you know, but it was really motivating. And it's very, it was a very like tactile, visible way to see how successful you were towards your goal. And it was very interactive. One of the reasons we didn't have gaming stations and cable television is because that then pushed us to interact with one another, play board games and do other things outside playing soccer or other stuff. And that's a key thing for parents. If you want a strong relationship when your kid is a teen, you need to invest the time between zero and six. Yes. Because you know, the kid is really wanting to spend time with you then. After six, they stop wanting to read. <laughs> it just diminishes over time. Recognize and certainly by 14, no they're not interested. <laughs> and I actually believe that during between zero and six, the patterns that you establish in terms of how you allow that space to happen and how you respond uh, to the no's will actually be a pattern for how you enter into those tween teen years. And I think a lot of times moms who, you know, come to me and that they're, they're like, I don't know what to do. You know, she's about to, and I'm like, okay, well then let's look at what happened for the first half <laughs> of the time. Cause that will give us some ideas to how you're going to need to approach what's coming up. Yeah. Cool. What other question do you want to go to? So I'm, I'm also cognizant of time. Jeez, I'm having so much fun. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm this glad. is a long carpool. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> We're driving to college? I don't know. Well, we, I, no, we, I think we've gone around Starbucks a couple of times. Well, the thing that I'm interested in, if we, we only have one question left, is the idea of step families and bonus moms and any of your thoughts about that concept. Well, in terms of, again, I'm not the licensed family marriage and family therapist here, but in terms of my thoughts about it, I think when you have someone in a blended family that way, that it's going to be really important for the mom to one work out whatever she's going to work out with her husband or partner in in that regard but then also take stock of what i'm just calling them unmet things i.e whether it's an unmet need unmet expectation somewhere in where she feels that she wasn't enough didn't do enough hasn't been enough really keep tabs on that because she doesn't want that to then play into any overcompensation she might be doing with her stepdaughter, because I can see that playing out in that regard in ways that might not be beneficial and hold potential for crossing boundary lines that are between her spouse or significant other and <laughs> their child, because there are yeah, definite roles that need to be respected in that. So that, that gets complex. Moms who come to me, at least the moms that I've been working with, it doesn't come up as often, but I can extrapolate. Cool. Hey, I focus specifically on that because there are a lot of blended families out there. Yes. Mm -hmm. And trying to figure out what your role is as a step mother or stepfather is difficult. And it's not like being the biological parent of a child. It's different. And just accepting that it's different. You're not a replacement. You're not any of that. You're a bonus. So how can you be a bonus? And, and Michelle, you do um, sports psychology. And I often work with step parents and say, 
you're more like a coach, an important, critical adult in this human's life. And it's different than being a true or biological parent. Different doesn't mean worse. There are people who will tell you my coach was more important to me than either of my biological parents. Mm -hmm. I've had lots of those people. And that's not to diss the parent. It's just to say that this can be a super important role if you play it well. And one of the things that I think is important in parenting is to trust your child. Really help your child to think, develop that prefrontal cortex and trust your kid. Let them fall down early because it costs less you know, to them. It, yes. the, the penalties are much smaller when you're five years old than it is when you're 15 years old. And if you don't learn how to fail well or how to accept that it didn't come out the way I wanted, it gets really more and more difficult the older you get. So trusting your kid is one of the things parents have a huge problem with because <laughs> they're just kids. But you trust them with what is developmentally appropriate. But you got to keep opening that up so that they build the strength to make choices for themselves. At least that's my point of view. No, I totally hear you on that. And I think the thing that makes it difficult for them to trust is that they're fearful. <laughs> Going back to what was brought up earlier by Kim. So yeah, and I think that fear is based in ways in which they experienced failure, or things not meeting expectations in their relationship with their mom and how their mom reacted to that, which is why I'm trying so hard and loving the work that I'm doing with moms and daughters, because I believe that your relationship with your mom is the foundation for any personal, parental, or professional success in the future. And, and even though I'm focused on moms and daughters, it has implications for the sons, the future sons, because they're the ones who, if they choose to be moms, are going to be raising those future sons too. So, you know, it's all connected. We all have a piece of the pie, just trying to help families in general. And one more comment on that. It can be the mom or a grandmother. So for my, in my life, my mother was relatively absent. She was present physically, but absent in most other ways. And it was my grandmother who really substituted for that role. And I have that kind of relationship I had. She's dead now. Uh, that kind of relationship with my grandmother that you describe with a mom. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to know, and a step parent can fill that same role. And it depends on the relationship you build with your kid. And if you care about building a relationship with the kid. For me, that's the foundation. I want a relationship with you. I want to understand you. I want to experience who you become rather than who I want you to be. Right. You make oh. me cry. Shall I go into the ending? <laughs> was that another mic drop? So we always, he always <laughs> he does this every time. He gets it's going baffling. and then his voice changes a little bit and then he's like, Duh. and we're like, okay, I guess oh. the episode's done. All right. <laughs> there it is. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Um, okay. First of all, thank you, Dr. Deering, for joining us this week and sharing your expertise on mother-daughter relationships. It was really thank delightful. So this is great. Yeah. I yeah. had a lot of fun riding Good. in this carpool with y'all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before we wrap up, where can listeners go to find out more about you? And do you have anything you want to share? Any upcoming projects or events? Well, the best way folks can connect with me is listening to my podcast, Mother Daughter Connections, which you can find on all platforms. And then I also have a Facebook group, Mother Daughter Connections, FB, as in Facebook. <laughs> and uh, I had the thing that I'm really excited about that I have coming up is that in May, on May 
15th through the 19th, I'll be having an online workshop called Get Your Daughter Talking, the Get Your Daughter Talking workshop. And I'll have information for you in the show notes, but just be on the lookout because there'll be some wonderful Mother's Day specials coming up. Awesome. Thank you. And yeah, we'll include links to all that in the show notes. So please check that out. Check so, out Dr. Deering's book too. Yeah. <laughs> what Mothers Never Tell uh-huh. Their Daughters. <laughs> it's an Thank excellent you, book and it really helps you understand what's going on in the relationship as time goes by with mothers and daughters. It's Mm. great to read with your mother or daughter. Awesome. Awesome. This week we covered mother-daughter relationships and some ways to deepen and improve those relationships. I particularly like Dr. Deering's insights about reflecting on your own childhood as a mother and the ways unmet expectations or needs play out as you raise your daughter. We hope this episode was helpful and thought-provoking, especially for those mothers and daughters listening. Thanks, as always, for listening. And until next time, enjoy the drive. Thank you for listening to The Relationship Road Trip. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and we want to know what you think. So write to us at questions at afpsych.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or subscribing with your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes of the show at RelationshipRoadTrip.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Relationship Road Trip comes out every Wednesday at 7 a.m., so don't forget to tune in next week. The Relationship Road Trip is brought to you by Azevedo Family Psychology, where they are dedicated to helping you create a life worth celebrating. You can learn more about their services at AzevedoFamilyPsychology.com. This podcast is produced by Bear Cave Audio. Bear Cave Audio provides a range of audio services, from original composition to podcast recording and editing. To learn more, go to bearcaveaudio.com or email ben at bearcaveaudio.com. Until we meet again, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. And may the sun shine warm upon your face. Thank you.